0: Greetings everyone. We hope you're well. We have a special event for you featuring the Lumina group of companies with four special guests who have worked together over the decades to construct notable value in the natural resource business by really pulling the levers just about right during the commodity cycle on the right side of that cycle. And I suppose that leads me to say that this event is part of the Smith Weekly Value Add series. I am the event host, Andrew Weekly, founder and CEO Of Smith Weekly Research. And thanks again for tuning in. We uh, urge the audience to allocate attention to the on screen notes shown here, as well as the event notes shown under the screen viewer, for important notices and details about this event. You can check terms and conditions via our website using the link shown. And while you're reading the forward looking statement here on the screen, I'll take this opportunity to point out that this event is a no cost arrangement where the guests and the guest companies have not paid us a penny while we've not paid them either so please enjoy knowing this is a no promotion event and for the audience having the company filings and company specific presentations handy along with a pen and paper might be useful to collect more details as we go here and to our guests well none of them really need introductions but you'll hear from all of them in just a moment but we've got ross Beatty here ross is one of the group founders and special advisors marshall koval a key advisor to the group is with us. Scott Hicks, the group chief executive officer is here with us as well. And of course, Leo Hathaway, a key man on the project development and technical direction side has joined us as well. All of these guys are key components of the Lumina group among others not here with us on the chat today. Well, gentlemen, welcome and how are things? Things are interesting, uh, Andrew, as
1: they always are.
0: And thanks again for taking the time, guys. Let's kick it off here with a specific question to each one of you that uh, have really been selected at random. Let's start with Marshall. Besides the home base, Marshall, what is your favorite getaway
2: place to go to? Well, it's been the airport, um, except during COVID that hasn't happened that much, but uh, I spend a lot of time in uh, Peru and Latin America, Ecuador, obviously with our projects. So. You know that's that's the work side. I guess uh, on the personal side, kind of like it here in Santa Barbara where I live. I don't feel like I I have to travel to Hawaii or any place like that for a vacation. So kind of uh, that's how I look at things.
0: And Scott, how many hours per day do you work?
3: Uh, it depends what time zones we're interacting with. But uh, yesterday was uh, started six, ended eight sort of day, but with some breaks in the middle. But uh, yeah, I think we all kind of work around the clock as needed, depending on what we're looking at and uh, and what investors we're interacting with.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right. Leo, what is your favorite meal? And if it's pizza, what type?
4: That is a good question. It's not pizza. Um, that is a good question. I, You know, I do like a good steak, i got to say. Steak and mushrooms and onions, which I shouldn't do too often.
0: Tasty. No, I like that one. And Ross, tell us how you met these guys.
1: <laughs> That's a tougher question,
2: Andrew.
1: Um, well, where let's see, where does it start? It it basically uh I've known Marshall for a very long time. Marshall used to be a, a kind of he ran a, a company um that was kind of a household name in the in the mining consultancy business, uh Pinkall Callan and Holt for many years. So I knew him through that back in the probably even 80, late eighties, nineties. Uh, but Marshall joined um, me in about 2003, I think, to work on a bunch of copper companies um, called the Lumina Copper Group. We had eventually six companies. Uh, so he's worked with me really as an integral part of my own investment and mining world uh, since 2003. Um, Leo joined almost immediately after that, I'm going to say 2000 for and has also worked with me very intimately and in doing all the exploration and, and management of that side of the, the business in all of those companies uh, right up until now, of course. And then Scott is a more recent uh, member of our team. He joined about, I don't know, how long ago, Mark, uh, Scott, about five years ago? Four years ago, yeah. Four years ago. So, Scott's the, the junior member of the team in terms of, uh, of uh, longevity, but he's certainly an integral part of our team today. So it's been a long time uh, Andrew and it's been a wonderful run we've had some tremendous successes and a lot of fun together as well
0: well that brings it right back into the next uh, discussion topics here you know the group strategy gentlemen this is a successful track record over the years with some real notable highlights along the way resulting in the value behind the statement millions invested billions returned and Ross is one of the founders Take us back to the days when the Lumina Group idea started. Who was involved and what were the reasons for setting up the group?
1: Well, the Lumina the Lumina Group started when I had a kind of a real epiphany about copper. Uh, I read this is the, the end of basically 2002 when copper was hitting an all-time low right at the start of the year. And I read a very seminal article about scarcity of metals and how many how many deposits we need to find every year to simply replace what we're consuming and it seemed to me when you look at a 50 year price chart, you know, copper is a cyclical business and, and it was like a sine wave with ever increasing amplitude. In other words, the highs got higher and the lows got lower, but you could draw a straight line through them. And, and when copper is trading at an all time low, you know, it's pretty, it's not exactly rocket science to say it's going to go up. So while it was very low in, in 2002 and early 2003, I went out and, and tried to acquire as, men, as much copper as I could. Uh, regardless of the fact that a lot of it was out of out of the money or not economic at the then copper price. And we eventually uh, acquired about a, about 10 different deposits all through the Americas from Canada down to Chile. And uh, in 2003, we took Lumina Copper Public. And then really after that, not long after that, the market went from being a buyer's market to a seller's market. And so we decided instead of just sitting on these deposits, we would we would start to explore and development and, that, and that's when we needed a team and that's when Marshall joined Leo joined and and Dave Strang and Robert Prues we had a really fabulous team small but incredibly smart and competent and really we just went from one of those deposits that I'd acquired in in those in that early year uh or early couple of years uh and one after the other we explored them advanced them and eventually sold them and we we uh we ultimately formed six companies out of the original group of 10 properties and I think the, the the numbers are, I can't remember the precise numbers, but we invested something like $200 million in exploration and development of these. And we sold the whole group of six companies for over about $2 billion. So, it was a very good gain and a lot of shareholders made a ton of money. And that ended in, in 2014. Uh, we'd also along the way started a, a nickel company called Anfield. And that uh, was successful initially, but then we hit a very poor nickel price market. We ended up selling the original nickel deposit and made Anfield into a gold company. And, uh, and then Anfield ultimately became what is today Equinox Gold, which I'm chair of. And it's, it's, a, it's a big multi-mine producing company that uh, that I'm working quite hard on right now. So, uh, and, and then along the way, we, we started a gold company, Lumina Gold, and then a spin-out Luminex, and that's kind of where things are today. But it's, it's, it was a fabulous run, and, uh, and uh, just, a as I said, a tremendous amount of fun as well.
0: Ross, I appreciate that. And Leo, how did you get involved? What was the story? How did this come about? Where did you meet up with Ross, and, and just how did you get involved with uh, the group, and then why have you stayed?
4: Well, I got it. I got involved because, as Ross said, he'd, he'd acquired all these copper projects, and then and then it was time to start working on them. And I'd um I'd lived in Peru for seven years, and I was I was looking to move from a um, large mining company into junior mining, so um that worked very well. Um, and I stayed because I like the group, and you know I, I get along with all the guys involved, and we've had a lot of fun and and been successful. So so there's really been no reason to think about moving along. And Marshall, take
0: us back to some of these past group companies. You can see them on your screen. Were there any moments internally where you, Ross, and the team thought, this isn't going to work? Or is there an instance where it seemed like the market odds were just overweight
2: against you? Yeah, I think um, Ross was talking about our our foray into the nickel business. And we had one of the largest uh, nickel laterite deposits in the world that we had advanced. And. It was a former BHP project, and we'd done a tremendous amount of work and a lot of really good social work in, in Guatemala. The project was called Maya Nickel, and we really advanced it. And, and you know, I'm real proud of what we did there. But the market turned against us, so you know, we had a lot of angst on, you know, do we, where do we want to go with this project? And you know, ultimately, we moved it on, as Ross said, and, and we pivoted into the gold space. Um, I think the, the other project that was really exciting when I first joined the, the company was, uh, the Regolito project, which is the Casarones mine today. And I think when I looked at coming into the group, that this really good asset base sort of next generation projects was real attractive to me. And a lot of my background that Ross had mentioned was sort of in the, um, engineering Working at Pincock Allen and Hold, I was the CEO and we're the independent engineers for banks on project finance. So, you know, for me, the challenge was to advance these projects and de-risk them and do real solid engineering. And I think um, if you look at the end of the day, our ability to sell these projects had a lot to do with our group's focus and exploration and and de-risking these projects and Ross's leadership on negotiating deals.
0: And Scott, question for you here: Would you say the group strategy is and will continue to be discovery and project advancement, de-risking, not necessarily construction and production?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. We get asked that a lot. Um, You know, I think on the gold and copper side, with the portfolio we have today, the de-risk and sell model is going to stay in place. I mean, in Lumina, we're obviously you know closer to the the selling end of the spectrum. and in Luminex we've got a, a great pipeline of projects that you know we think are all going to be hopefully large scale and, and successful in nature. Um, strategic's a bit of a different beast in the sense that you know even though we've got a large scale project in it right now, um, certainly in the vanadium side, there's not a lot of primary producers. So there could be some scarcity value to building a project like that at some point. so, we we'll have to kind of continue to think and evaluate that.
0: Well, let's move on here Scott. I appreciate the uh the comments on that. And to our first group company here, we have Lumina Gold. Lumina is the larger of the group companies with a market cap of around 280 million Canadian today. Lumina is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol LUM and of course over at the US OTC markets under the symbol LMG d f marshall let's start out here and ross leo scott please jump in as desired but marshall give us a short overview of lumina gold with the capital structure
2: yeah so um basically we're sitting at about i believe it's about 350 million shares uh fully diluted and you know there's no warrants in the company Uh, a little bit of options but uh, that's kind of the overall capital structure of it. Ross owns 19.9% of the company, I think I'm in at about 4% of the company, and uh, the balance of management has a significant position as well. Um, the congrejo's project is the only asset that we have in uh, Lumina Gold in its development stage, as as you know. and. Uh, basically we've advanced this far enough and de-risk it from an engineering perspective that it's gonna move down the track to be built. So the question is, is, is when do we see our exit? Um, The company um, has been operating in Ecuador since uh, I guess 2014 when we acquired it. And at the time we acquired the project, it didn't have a resource estimate. And today we're sitting at about 17 million ounces of gold of which about 10 million ounces is in the inferred resource category and about 2 billion pounds of copper and about 1.5 billion pounds of that copper is in the inferred category. So we've done significant engineering work. We've um, de-risked the thing and uh, basically um, have it in pretty good shape. We're continuing permitting now. There's an election in Ecuador that uh, we think that'll be beneficial in the long run for mining there was some concern that a anti-mining candidate uh, might get into the second round and ultimately become president and that would impact the uh, mining sector in Ecuador we don't we don't see that at this point Um, so I think uh, we're in good shape moving forward
0: and Ross you're no stranger to difficult jurisdictions in Ecuador is a good place to do business as compared to other jurisdictions if you know what you're doing. You've lived through many government cycles during these natural resource ups and downs. Now that Fruita del Norte and Mirador are up and running in Ecuador, are you concerned with Ecuador during this uptrend in the natural resource markets from a political and regulatory environment?
1: You know, I've really never been too uh, worried about political environments in, in any countries that I've explored and developed in, because things can change, and they can change quite profoundly, one way or the other. So the key thing in the mining game, in the exploration game, and in, in the in the value add game is to get a good project and then develop it. And if your strategy is that like ours is, which is to explore and develop and then sell as opposed to build a mine. You know, you just have to focus on the quality of the deposit first. And then kind of cross your fingers and hope that the country does good things. Because you just never know. I mean, even Canada and the US have been very hostile over the last, you know, in, in, in various times in the last 20 or 30 years to mining. Um, and 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 Pariahs, once pariahs like Peru in the 80s and early 90s, which was a terrorist state and, and terribly badly governed, all of a sudden there was a new president and they cleaned house. And it's been, it's been one of the greatest countries for mining since 1993 and, and remains so today. So you just can't, you can't be too cautious, I think, politically. We, we have to expect that uh, there's going to be a little bit of political noise, no matter where you are, and, and that includes developed countries. Uh, It's just a tough business these days and you've got social issues all over the place you have to deal with, whether you're in Ecuador or whether you're in Nevada. But um, what we like about Ecuador is it has a fabulous mineral endowment. In other words, it's really a great piece of Earth's crust where there are large gold deposits, large copper deposits and lots of other stuff that has just been very much underexplored. When we went into Ecuador in uh, 2014-15, it was just coming out of an era where mining had been discouraged. It, was, it, was a very, it had had a very rich oil endowment and, and the country was living off the oil revenues and they didn't think they needed anything else. Well, the oil has run out, the price has, has decreased and, and, uh, and so they need to look to other things to, to, to build their economy and get people working. And so, mining has, has, has filled that gap. And I think the government definitely sees it and both of the people running for president this, this year. Both are pro-mining, they both understand how mining can pull the country up again, get people back working, pro- provide for a government infrastructure and so forth. And the examples you cited of, uh, of Mirador, which is a Chinese-owned copper, big copper mine, and Frida del Norte, which is a Lundin Gold-owned large gold mine, what they're generating in revenue and and taxes and employment and so forth, it is demonstrating to the people of Ecuador how much of an an economic engine a good mine can be. So right now they're quite positive to mining. By and large, you know, there's certain places that are kind of hotbeds of social activism in the country, just like there are everywhere. And in those places, it's more difficult. But where we are, it's been uh, it's been very. We've had a very cooperative uh, structure with our local communities. And we're really working with them to 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 get this big project going uh, and uh, and make it into a real winner for for everyone.
0: I'd agree that the ex- extractive industries are the economic backbone of a place like Ecuador. It's a necessity, and to cause distrust with the operators there would really be a big whack to the head um, for you know the regulatory body or the government body. So we'll see what happens. I, I uh, am optimistic uh, that things will continue to go well there. Scott, ESG money has been flowing into the natural resource sector, and this has been generally an unexpected trend. What is the company doing on this front, not only to attract ESG money, but also handling that social license?
3: Yeah, I mean, the group has a long history of, you know, being very successful in the communities it's worked in. If you go back to, you know, before I was with the group, even the Anfield Nickel days, you know, the company had won. Uh, awards for the type of work that they have done there. Um, you know we have big teams on the ground in Ecuador and and uh, a gentleman by the name of John Yule who's overseeing a lot of our our corporate uh, social affairs and y- you know he's worked in for years in Latin America and it is a cornerstone of what we do because you know if you don't have the social license to operate at your project you're not going you're not going to get very far. So both in and around Cangreos and in the El Oro province and in uh in and around Condor and Kaskis and Zamorich and Chippe, uh we spend a lot of time um, you know, understanding who the stakeholders are, uh figuring out what the communities need and, and want and uh, you know, figuring out the most reasonable way to to deliver that to them. And I mean obviously I think the ESG money you're referring to comes a little bit more into play with, with the producers, but um you know certainly a ground up community approach is is what we look to build our projects upon
0: Leo you've led the technical team on the Congrehos project do you have any concerns about consistency metallurgy or any other geotechnical risks to this project
4: No I don't one of the things that drew us into the project was there were really nothing stood out as a as a challenge um, on in those areas in those areas you mentioned um, the, the the metallurgy is very very good you know we pick the optimal process route um through the pea process um the geotechnically it stands up very well compared to um comparable deposits so no i think that's one of the things it has going for us going for it that you know um it, it doesn't have any good challenges it's not too far from the coast strip ratio isn't too challenging you know all those things kind of tick boxes which is what is what, what really drew us in
0: Leo, how do you think it compares? Because you've spent a lot of time Central South America, other places. When you look at deposits that are out there in development, doesn't this one really, definitely in the top two at this point for this region as far as this project and the stage and just the how amenable it is to development?
4: Well, that that's what we think. You know, it's a huge resource, nearly nearly 17 million ounces in inventory. Um, you know so so we think that it's too big for anybody looking for that for looking for the gold mines of the future to ignore ignore um so yeah you know we're kind of doing our thing and and waiting to see what happens and we're you know watching the gold price
0: marshall talk about the eis approval for the western portion of the deposit at this point walk the audience through the next steps you know you've got infill step out category conversion and the final permitting process to demonstrate to the suitors that this project is ready to be constructed.
2: Yeah, so so basically <clears throat> where the project sits right now is we have exploration related uh, EISs in place for the entire project. Um, we had acquired the Western portion, I believe you're thinking about is the C20 concession. And we didn't have have a EIS or a EIA on that. Uh, ultimately we did one and we got it approved but in the in the interim we were drilling under a scout drilling program that the government put in place and that allowed us to take the c20 concession which included half of um Cangrejos and and pretty much all of Gran Bestia deposits the two main deposits that make up the 70 million ounces it allowed us to do all the work we needed there so we've um while we're doing all that work, we were doing all the social work, um, you know, looking at all of the environmental baseline studies and all the things you need to do to move the project on towards permitting. Um, in 2018, we completed a PEA that showed real uh, positive uh, potential economics on the Congreos deposit alone. And a lot of that we were headed towards a PFS, uh, and then we made the discovery at Gran Bastia. So we elected to update um, the PEA, but quite a bit of the project metallurgy wise, a lot of the, the pit slope, pit design uh, engineering pit slopes in Congrejos itself are at PFS, a lot of the process engineering. So uh, basically we put out in 2020 an updated PEA, And that really defined the project, it it defined where the tailings were going to go, it defined the overall scale. So now we were in the position that we could look at sort of what needs to be done to permit and ultimately put this into production. And a lot of the work we're doing today is continuing the baseline, things like ARD studies, looking at humidity cell work related to um, waste rock and ongoing biodiversity studies and a lot of things you would need to do to permit the project once you make a go decision, after a feasibility study is complete, and and if if somebody wanted to move the project on, say an acquirer wanted to move the project from where it is today to a feasibility study, it's sort of an 18 month exercise. And then you would in parallel uh, put together uh, sort of your pre-development, do, do early work, that sort of thing to get some of the infrastructure in place. But it's sort of about three years uh, after that to be into production. And remember, we're talking initially about a 40,000 ton per day uh, project. And to give you an idea, uh, the Mirador uh, mine that we were talking about earlier was constructed. It's operating at 40,000 tons per day. I think the plant was built with a capacity of 80. So they're still in the ramp up phase so you know these are these are large-scale construction projects so you know that's kind of the general timeline that i can point out
0: ross do you see that this project given the production profile and the fact that it could probably go either way on that profile is really tier one as you guys have laid this out and is the project for someone like an uncle mark at barrack or do you see senior mid-tiers coming in for this project um, over the gold-focused majors, what's your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great project. Um, I think the one thing you have to, that, that most investors have to understand about this whole mining business is that because it's a non-renewable industry, every single day, every company that's in the mining business basically eats its future. It consumes its resources and it must replace them or ultimately go out of business. That's the fundamental nature of every extractive industry, be it an oil company or a mining company. And what that means is that the major companies who are, like let's take Barrick for example, they, they produce about 5 million ounces of gold a year. Every single year they need to replace that 5 million ounces or ultimately they'll go out of business because every one of their mines will ultimately deplete and close. And that's why there's always going to be a market For the junior companies like us that have discovered big deposits that will offer reserve replacement opportunities and new mining opportunities for those major companies, that has been the Luminous strategies from day one. We were the, the small company that went out and got their their hands on these properties, confirmed their value by spending a lot of money on drilling and on metallurgical work, all the work that Marshall talked about, to prove that these are economic deposits and de-risked, that they don't have fatal flaws, they don't have problems that are going to stop companies from being able to exploit them. That's really what we've done at Lumina Gold for the last six years, is we've de-risked it, we've drilled the heck out of it, we've confirmed the resource, we've confirmed the metallurgy, confirmed the economics, confirmed the social license, the environmental side, as well, and really now we've 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 basically wrapped it up in a box and put a beautiful ribbon on it, ready for some large company to come along, and take this on, buy it from us, and then go and build it into a big mine. Uh, Cangrejos offers large size potential. It's got gold and some copper. It's going to produce what, Marshall, 300 350,000 ounces a year for for 15 or 20 years.
2: Yeah, about three sixty-six average over over the life of the mine. Yeah.
1: Sure, and and in terms of 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 cash costs, Marshall, Marshall, what are we looking at? Cash costs, all in sustaining costs, six hundred four. Six hundred four. So six hundred and four dollars uh, per ounce is the cash cost, all in sustaining costs. Probably another hundred or two hundred dollars more than that. So under well, any that, measure,
3: that's the all in. Yeah.
1: That uh, six hundred is all in. Okay. So I mean, uh, by any measure, this is going to be a world-class deposit, very much tier one, Andrew. To your question, and very much something that we think Barrick and companies like Barrick should be looking at to acquire. So we've been basically for the last year, we have been, uh, we've been completing our studies. We've been showing it to a bunch of companies. We have been seriously burdened by the COVID. Uh, crisis that has hit every country in the world and it is certainly at Ecuador hard and so that has made it very difficult for a lot of companies to do their uh, site reviews and so on in the last year and that's why you've seen so few deals announced on, on any property anywhere in the world but there's going to be when COVID cleans up, I think there's going to be a real uh, expansion of opportunities for companies to look at these kind of properties, there's very, very few like like Cangrejos, there's very few companies that are set up for sale the way Lumina Gold is, and I think you're going to see a transaction happening sometime this year.
0: Well said, Ross, and with your recent retirement from Pan American, just think of all that free time you have to take this <laughs> Lumina attack forward. <laughs> uh, Leo. Talk about the expansion potential. I don't even know if you guys care for expansion potential at congrejos anymore, but maybe you can just talk about expansion potential if need be. And do you think this project expansion really has a lot of good runway left?
4: Well, well, I really do. We um it it's it's open in a number of directions, but the but the most significant um areas to the northwest of Grand Bestia where we where we stopped drilling and in the corporate presentation you can see there's a set there's a drill section where there's a vertical hole in gold grade all the way down and and then nothing to the northwest of it so you know this was a this was a project we we stopped drilling um but but left plenty of exploration upside on on the table um so at grand bestia we we feel that at can there was a higher grade core that was characterized by bornite that um, we defined, and we could see ourselves vectoring towards that u- using the mineralogy at Grand Bestia, and we never found it. So not only do we, do I think we've got more um, of the same grades defined, I think we might have a higher grade, a higher grade core that that that's yet to be discovered. So I think I think it's very exciting.
0: Yeah, certainly appreciate the uh, the insights on that part of it, um, Marshall. The value disconnect at Lumina with the shares. What do you think is needed to start closing that gap with just the the caveat that it appears right now in this market that the re-rates during construction phases uh, tend to happen, but it's still been reluctant to kind of move down the food chain so far. And let me just couple that with, are there any discussions at this point that are taking place? What do you think is needed to close that gap? And is the gap really just an announcement
2: of a buyout? So there's a couple of things that kind of play into that. I think if you look at um, Ecuador, not just now with the presidential election, which has created a little bit of uncertainty, but generally starting to move more in a positive direction, kind of as we get closer to the second round of the election, but you've got an Ecuador discount. So if you look at PNAV of uh, development projects like um, Cangrejos and others in Ecuador versus Western peers. We're we're trading at about a forty percent PNAB discount to the Western peers, right? So, so that's fundamentally uh, built in it. And I think as Ecuador kind of moves through the election, and, and if we stay in solid gold price environment uh, where we're at now, um, I think what you'll see is is that kind of adjust. And that's even impacted companies like Lundin, for instance. And you know Scott probably has a bit more perspective that he could add on this. But I think um, also, uh, you know, obviously, if a transaction is uh, is is announced, obviously that's going to swing it as well. Um, Scott, do you have anything uh, that you can add to what I just said?
3: I, I mean, I would I would say the last, you know, since I started with the group, the last four years, it's it's been a a constant um, education process for investors. But but the one anecdote I would say is. You know, when I started at the company in 2017, there was there was investors that wouldn't, they'd look at Ecuador in the profile and they would say, nope, not taking a meeting. And, you know, I think that's gone away, Andrew. Um, so, I mean, people are open to listening about it now. Um, and certainly there's been so much activity and success from different companies in country, it, it, it's hard not to look at it. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a process. And I, Marshall, you know, aptly compares it to, you know, Peru in the in the 90s, I think, and, you know, we'll continue to see it de-risk. And I, I think that gap will close over time. And as Ross says, these countries ebb and flow, you know, and there's a lot of um, people in Peru right now who are worried about the next election and, you know, what that what that does from a risk perspective. So these, these countries all go through different different cycles. And and we certainly think Ecuador will continue to trend in the in the right direction here.
2: Yeah, and Agreed. as a you know, as a CEO, every CEO out there is going to tell you their company's uh undervalued. But I'm gonna tell you just kind of to answer <laughs> your question at the end, I think we're significantly undervalued versus the what we have and, and the future that this project has. Absolutely. Um we've seen some peers
0: that have that have come out with a promotional campaign and so forth and putting a few fancy titles on the uh company slide decks and new people appointed to the boards and you know, we've seen these different strategies take place, but this is a solid, real good asset with a good team behind it. Scott, just to wrap up here on Lumina Gold, any capital needs going forward over the next few quarters? Will you raise capital? Um, And if so, you know, how should investors and credited and institutional audience who might be listening, reach out to get on that list?
3: sure. So I think if you're an investor in Lumina Gold or thinking about being an investor in Lumina Gold, you know, there's really there's a there's a, a fork coming up. So, you know, in October we announced that Ross um, you know, was willing to put in a, a five million dollar facility while we pursue our strategy of of trying to sell the company. Uh, you know, that's that's plan A for us, Andrew. Um now obviously it's been a, a very unique year and you know, if for some reason we aren't able to execute on plan A, um, plan B is is advancing the PFS that Marshall described earlier. So, you know, from our perspective, we don't think there's much downside for people. I mean, we traded $10 uh, gold equivalent ounce in the ground. It's extremely cheap when you look at the MPV of the project. Um, so, you know, if we did have to go and raise the 20, $25 million Canadian to do a PFS, um, we don't think that's there's much downside for investors from here. Um, but we really are focused right now on plan A and trying to sell the company.
0: Yeah, this has been actually a pretty steady stock, uh, you know, so there is some benefits to that. It has been quite steady in a range here, and I think it looks, uh, appears to be ready to potentially move higher here as we go. Well, let's move on. Let's talk uh, Luminex Resources, our second group company, following, of course, the Ecuador theme. One more time, Luminex is the size. Of the group companies with a market cap of about sixty-seven million Canadian here, Luminex is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol LR and also on the USOTC markets under the symbol LUMIF. Scott, Luminex houses the exploration and other development projects for the group in Ecuador. Give us just a short preview of Luminex and cover the capital structure for
3: us. Yeah, sure. So I mean, this is. Uh... This is a pretty exciting company that's, you know, it's it's a good time for us to be talking to you about it. It's right on the cusp of a lot of, um, you know, milestones that the management team's been working on here in the background for for, for months and years. Um, the, the share structure, it's about 91 million shares outstanding. Um, you know, the ownership is Ross, again, at, at 19.9%. Uh, management holds about 6.4% of the company. Uh, there's a group of Ecuadorian investors that hold just under 15%. So, you know, really supportive group of investors, as is the case with, with most of our companies. Um, you know, this was this company was created uh, as a way to facilitate a sale in Lumina Gold, um, and Leap Congres is the only asset in, in Lumina Gold, um, but what that meant is that all the exciting Earlier stage exploration projects um, that were in luminical got spun out into Luminex, as well as the Condor project, which is kind of the the cornerstone of it, with five million ounces of, of gold at that project. So, um, you know, we're right on the cusp of starting to drill some of our copper projects, and and we're pretty excited, as you know, you can see because management's been out in the market over the last month buying, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of shares.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I appreciate you bringing that one up. And you know, with copper here, things are looking good. We see companies like Solaris Resources uh, firing on all cylinders here as they continue to punch holes in the ground in Ecuador. So you've got this in-house exploration and development projects, and then you've got some generator model in the JV partners, BHP and Anglo. Um, that's just fantastic. And And I think that's also important to point out is you guys have kind of ticked all the boxes here and I want to move on with just getting Leo's comments here. You know, this is a vast collection of expiration properties, probably from what I can tell, among one of the largest land packages assembled in Ecuador. Leo, walk the audience through how you prioritize and advance these properties and how expiration results can change what you do next.
4: Well, we you know, we have a we have a range of kind of levels of advancement in in um... In Luminex, you know, Condor is is advanced, and we're doing a PEA. So really, you know, we that's that's kind of a data collect, collecting mode from my point of view. We're not doing too much exploration there, um, <clears throat> but we but we but we have a number of really exciting um, projects to go and explore in the in the portfolio. You know, aside what from what BHP and Anglo. Um, are doing which we're watching very closely and are excited about we have our own project project pipeline um, which right now um, we're focusing on the cascus project which um, we were excited about originally because it had a, a very large copper and gold soil anomaly we've been advancing it trying to understand it more um, we now have a, a copper porphyry target at Shakai that we that we have at drill stage and we'll be drilling next month um that that from geology geochemistry geophysics is is a you know porphyry copper deposit sticking out of the ground that hasn't been drill tested so from an exploration standpoint that's about as exciting as it gets it's a you know it i've no doubt it's a it's a copper system it's in a belt from you know that that contains Mirador an existing mine that contains the Solaris uh, Warinsa that you know we've seen drill results from. So you know it doesn't get much more exciting than that, and 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 also BHP is will be testing tar- Taki soon as well. So that's two porphyry copper deposits in an exciting belt that are, that are being drill tested imminently. So you know from mine it doesn't get much more exciting than that. So we have the full range in uh, in in Luminex.
0: Ross, this was a spinoff arrangement that took all the exploration and second projects at Illumina Gold. Talk about that decision for a moment, and then also the potential here with what you guys have, this is a big portfolio, the multi-discovery, multi-project potential with Luminex.
1: Sure. When we started in Ecuador, uh, we focused on the Cangreos deposit because it was a tangible, large obviously a pro tangible and large, and obviously something we thought we could add value to and, and eventually sell but uh, in about two thousand and sixteen or so, the government opened up a lot of exploration lands for acquisition and because we had a lot of information and, and experience in Ecuador, we went and acquired as much as we could we and this is it, it, when when I say acquire it means we we basically stake claims or took out concessions so we owned, we owned the projects. And we had this large land holding in multiple areas on, on early stage properties that had, you know, some potential but, but they were almost all very little explored. So, between 2016 and today, we've been, uh, slowly but surely, we've been, we've been taking specific blocks of ground that we acquired in that, in that concession application process and we spun off a bunch to, uh, to BHP and they've, uh, they're now exploring at their cost these properties that we own under a 70-30 deal. Uh, where they spend 70, they they earn a 70% just by spending, I forget how much, 50 million or 80 million dollars in exploration. We did the same thing with Anglo, Anglo American. We we took a, a group of concessions and they've they've been working on those. Um, and then we took another group, uh, first Quantum. These are all huge mining companies. Uh, they they did some exploration work. Then they they actually returned that property to us. BHP and and Anglo are still working on on the ones that they've uh, they've acquired. And then we have a whole bunch of other ones that we own 100% of. Some are copper, some are gold, and it includes a gold group called the Condor Project that we, that I think we have about five million ounces, as 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 uh, as Leo or Marshall mentioned or Scott, uh, in resources on that. So we've got a big gold endowment in this company, and we've got these exciting copper exploration plays. Not one, not two, but three or four. So I guess the company has taken all of the ground that we acquired put it in one entity while we were able to, 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 to leave Lumina Gold simply with the one big deposit that we intend to sell and now we're exploring this other stuff. Now, what's going to happen? The odds are pretty high, I think, that we're going to make a discovery and it's going to be a pretty significant discovery because the targets we've got are all very large-scale uh, targets. These are, these are big, big copper porphyries, they could be huge. So not one, not two, not three but we've got a whole bunch of these in the company. My guess, if I was going to fast forward three or four years, I would I would guess that one of those is going to jump out and become the key focus property of Luminex. Meanwhile, the other ones, which are earlier stage or, or are getting taken a little bit longer to develop, you know, we could we could actually spin out another company uh, and and do this all over again. We did that six times in the Lumina Copper Group, and I wouldn't be surprised to see us doing this again and again. Out of the assets we have in Ecuador, just in Luminex uh, resources. So Luminex right now, as Leo and, and Scott said, it's just pregnant with opportunity. Multiple chances here to make a, a a single or double or triple or even a home run discovery, leaving all those other depo- other projects still in the company, adding adding potential future value. I, I really have to say, there's very few companies I know that have this kind of blue sky upside. That's going to be tested this year uh, for investors to get a wonderful capital gain from. I'm very excited about it, and I think you can see uh, you can see that it's just starting to reflect itself in the market.
0: Yeah, certainly a, a set of pretty girls in the portfolio. There's no doubt about that. Um, Marshall, you've got the PEA on Condor going, uh, expiration focus over at Cascus, as uh, Leo said. Um, You know what is the plan here to really demonstrate further value in these projects next year if you can speak to that and are there some preview assumptions in the pea coming up
2: yeah so we're pretty far into the pea and we're looking at sort of uh you know this is all if COVID and we can continue our work without any uh problems there sort of the end of june having the pea done we've done quite a bit of the field work um looking at sort of uh infrastructure, waste rock storage, tailings, we're in the middle of doing that, we've done site characterization. But basically what we're looking at is um, this northern epithermal area at Condor has four deposits. The camp zone, which is an underground uh, target that we discovered and released uh, a resource on last year. Um, Los Cuyas, which is open pit sort of diatreme, uh, and Soledad and Enmar are similar. So what we're looking at is probably about a 2000 ton per day underground operation at the camp zone. And the camp zone is uh, has uh, mineralization true width of uh, three meters all the way up to 30 meters of um, true width. So we're looking at multiple mining methods there and, and we're advancing the engineering, underground engineering there. So we're uh, getting a pretty good handle on that. And then we're looking at, the balance of the open pits to where hopefully we can define a 20 to 25,000 ton per day overall project with 2000 ton per day coming from underground and the balance from the open pit. We've done a fair amount of metallurgy on on the camp zone. It looks really good. Sort of 95% um, gold recovery and 80% copper um, in flotation uh, for, sorry, not copper, silver. In flotation, but we're looking at a gravity and CIL circuit, which would take the silver recoveries down to around 50%. So, real simple flow sheet, um, gravity circuit, CIL plant. Um, So, you know, we're we're pretty uh, excited about this thing. We're going in and you know, doing the pit limiting shells on the open pit at sort of 1250 gold. And then we'll do the NSR cutoff grade at 1500, and we're doing this 1500 for the underground. So we think, um, you know, within that price range, uh, the the project should do pretty well. And you know, we're sort of looking at the potential from, you know, sort of 100, let's say 150 to 200,000 ounce range, a year of gold production, and then significant by byproduct silver. And you're producing a dory, so you're not uh, hauling concentrates across the country or anything like that. So that's kind of the the scope overall of how we're looking at the PEA at this point.
0: Yeah, this is a good little project and I appreciate that Marshall, the overview on, on what we can see uh, potentially coming forward here on what the expectations are in the PEA. Scott, capital needs on this company going forward. Um, do you need to raise capital soon? And uh, what's your thoughts on, you know, capital raise and potential institutional and also accredited audience uh, contacting you guys about a potential capital raise?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, I mean, going back to last year when we raised the $13 million Canadian uh, around 70 cents there, you know, use of proceeds was really the 9,000 meters of drilling at Condor, which we've done and, and you know, getting an initial program going at Cascus, which we're about to do, and then getting fairly far down the track on the, on the PA. so you know a lot of uh, the capital needs are going to be determined here in the next couple months as we see uh, how the drilling goes at cascus um, you know our group has a history if we're if we're on to something um, you know we have the ability to get a lot of rigs out there and, and raise a lot of capital to advance that type of project so I mean we're kind of waiting to see how it looks at cascus and then um, you know making a determination of how hard we want to go at it from a drilling perspective. But um, you know, we're thinking probably towards the end of Q2 would be the type of time uh, frame for making a decision on what the na- next raise looks like.
0: Leo, from a technical perspective, you know you've handled a lot of these exploration activities and as well as getting some of these initial discoveries going. Just give the audience a flavor for a few technical tips on what they should be aware of as investors when looking at geology and whether or not it works.
4: Okay, well that's a pretty um broad question, you know. But what you what I, I think what you try and do is you look at try and look at existing mines and look at the geological characteristics that 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 have made that into a mine. And then what you what you hope to see is is those same characteristics sticking out of the ground in something that isn't a mine, you know, and and then and then you and then you then you start exploring and testing. You know from my point of view, you, you first you test the surface and that gives you two dimensions. and then if you see enough extent that you're going to get a decent tonnage and the and the and the grades look like they could be economic, then you start drilling and try and add a, add a third dimension and and that adds tonnage. Um, that's essentially what what we, what we've done and and that's you know that's what we're doing at cascus we have the two dimensions but now we're looking for the third with the with the drill.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a good starting point for the audience who wants to, to look at that a little bit more and dig deeper.
3: And I mean, Andrew, the nice thing is, in this, as Leo kind of touched on in this belt, is that there are a lot of analogs, you know. Um, obviously, Ross and, and Marshall at, at Equinox Gold are large investors in uh, in Solaris and Warensa, which is, um, you know, what we're hoping to see at uh, at Tarki and and cascus and you know we've got Sol Gold drilling core veneer in the belt as well and, and obviously the mirador project so you know there's a lot of analogs for for leo and our geologists to look at and you know we're seeing some of those or all of those exciting signs at, at our projects as well um, so you know now it's time to add that third dimension as leo says yeah that's
0: great scott and uh, certainly some good Stuff coming out of, of the other companies there and some of the progress, uh, Solaris, particularly at this point, given where it is, very close to Lumina X and, of course, in Ecuador. So, um, Rosh, you nailed the uh, exit strategy and and the potential here and the timeline as well. And I really like and appreciate the comparison to the prior Lumina Copper Day spend So, I'm going to leave that with the exit uh, as you already nailed that part of it. Well, let's move on to the Last and final group company, Strategic Resources. Strategic is the smallest with uh, a market cap of about 12 million Canadian as it stands here. Strategic is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol SR and also on the US OTC Markets under the symbol SCCFF and also has a listing on the Frankfurt Exchange in Europe under UI8P. Russ, the group spent some time, and I'm sure there was some debate, figuring out on what to focus on with this company, and you guys settled on vanadium. From your view, what was the reasoning?
1: You know, the, the, mar- the world is going to need battery metals in ever-increasing amounts going forward. Uh, there's a lot of lithium in the world. Um, lithium is a very common metal. It's Common in hard rock deposits, in brine deposits, all over the world. So there's not going to be any. I don't think there's going to be a great price move in in, in in lithium because there's so much of it, and that's a good thing because that means that that companies can really scale up and use use lithium in 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 a lot of batteries. But there are other, many many other chemistries in batteries, in big big batteries. These are these are batteries that store you know large scale amounts of, of electricity generated, for example, from wind farms and from solar farms, and that's where metals like vanadium come in uh, and right now there's sort of a war of, of chemistries going on where there's a lot of engineers in a lot of places looking at making these big, big batteries out of different metals and I, at this point I don't know if there's yet a winner but what we do know is that vanadium is a really excellent uh, battery metal. It, produces, it makes a, a battery called a flow battery and it's a completely different technology than say a vanadium battery but it's it's got many advantages over lithium batteries. The problem with vanadium is it's expensive and that's the thing that has really stopped it from becoming a kind of a household name. Vanadium's normal market is it's a a strengthener in in steel and it's used in specialty steels in certain places, but that's a very steady state market, maybe slowly growing. It's not a a market that's going to just transform the, uh, the potential for the metal. Battery metals will do that. If vanadium becomes an important metal, for storage big storage batteries you're going to see huge demand for this this metal and because of that and because we're trying to build uh, we're trying to acquire assets cheaply of course that will have much much higher value in the future we decided to get involved in this in this uh, in the vanadium game and went to places like finland and peru which is where there's large deposits that are known and we we acquired some properties and now we're exploring them and we're we're seeing what's what's going on while at the same time uh, the battery development technology for vanadium flow batteries is also advancing and growing and, 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 and developing. Thanks, Ross. And the
0: company took a deal, you know, essentially a development asset in Finland, the Mustavara project. Scott, why don't you give us an overview um, of the company here and, of course, the capital structure?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, um, just kind of adding to what Ross said there, uh, you know, our group, and looking back at what we've acquired in the past in the copper space, and and certainly with Congreos, I mean, a key thing for our group is is entry point as well as as, as exit point. And you know, we got in here and out at Mustavara basically. It, we viewed the bottom of the vanadium cycle. We got a large existing resource on a brownfields uh, site for for very little. Um, so you know, we think hopefully we've nailed the entry. Um, now we'll see where the market goes from there but um, you know it's still early days for this company. We're, we've are we got a cap structure just over 40 million shares outstanding. We're trading about 35 cents today so you know in and around a 15 million dollar Canadian market cap. Uh, we've got two key projects. Uh, most of our is the brownfields one I just mentioned and then we've got uh, the Sila Selka project, which is an earn-in. Um, some of your listeners are probably familiar with Orion, uh, which is a gold exploration company focused in Finland. So we're earning uh, in on the Sila Selka project there and have a path to 100%. So this year, uh, what it looks like for us, we're going to be doing a PEA at Mustavara that we expect to have out in Q2 here. And that'll outline, you know, a fairly large-scale project. I mean, it's going to be an over 20-year mine life um, we've got almost 150 million ton resource there at the project just from past drilling and and obviously, you know, metallurgy and all those risks that you would usually look at at mining projects um, have been addressed because it's a it's a past producer. Um, and then, you know, later this year, we'll look to drill uh, an initial program at Seelah Selka. The project had previously been drilled, um, but this program will allow us to get a maiden 43101 101 resource on it. So, you know, if you fast forward to the end of the year, you'll have a PEA on Mustavara and uh, and a maiden resource on Cela Selka. And then, you know, we're continuing to look at other projects. Um, you know, we're looking in the vanadium space, but we're also looking at, at other things that are key to the, the battery revolution that uh, Ross was referring to.
0: And Scott, is the company looking to add other potential energy metals, or is this really just going to be a focus on pure play vanadium here?
3: You know, we like the we like the vanadium market because it's a small market. It's only 100,000 tons a year. We think, you know, you'll get your kind of base level growth with just, you know, GDP growth and steel, um, just kind of the conventional way. And, and if the batteries do take off, well, then we're in a really good spot. Um, you know, we'll look primarily at vanadium, but I think the group has looked at at some things in amino and graphite, some things in in lithium, um, but again, it kind of has to fit that criteria for us of good entry points. So, you know, to Ross's point, there's lots of lithium out there. So, you know, if, you, if you're if you going to be in that market, you want to make sure your, your entry point is attractive, and, and that goes for, for any of the projects we're looking at, really. Agreed,
0: Leo. Cover this mineralization type at Mustavara. What caught your attention when you looked at this project? And my suspicion is that you see a lot of exploration potential here.
4: Yeah, these um, the one thing about Mustavara is it's, it's very consistent. These um, these deposits form in large magma chambers, and they the vanadium rely, resides in iron oxide minerals that um, sink to the bottom of a of a layer in the in the um, magma chamber. And then as everything solidifies, they form a consistent slab-like bed, which is what we see at Mustavara. Um, you know, And from an exploration point of view, they're magnetic, so we can pick them up with um, magnetic surveys. Um, and then we distinguish them from other things that are magnetic by doing of till sampling, where we drill down to the bottom of the till and take geochemical samples and, you know, and and look for magnetic features that contain vanadium so that's kind of in a nutshell what we how how we explore for them
0: thanks leo i appreciate that and marshall just give us your take real quick on finland and peru
2: as mining jurisdictions well they're both really good mining jurisdictions i spent a big part of my career in in peru working there all the way back to 1993 about the same time i think ross went in there with pan-american silver he might have been in there a bit earlier But um, Finland is a good jurisdiction, you know, they pro-mining, pro-responsible mining. mining. You know, the fact that um, Mustavara, for instance, is um, a Brownfields project. Uh, We've picked up a lot of the engineering team that had previously worked on the project. We have uh, some people that have been around all the way back to when it was in production. So um, we're getting pretty close to having the PEA finished. Uh, we've done a lot of engineering. We're in the phase right now where we're doing optimization work of it. We're looking at optimizing the pit. We just went through an exercise of that that we hope will uh, improve the overall economics. We're looking at technologies. Um, you know a lot of the vanadium uh, cost to, to operate and produce the metal is more in the smelting side of things. Um, but we 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 were able to look at some technologies within the pit to lower the operating cost and optimize the pit. And so I think um, we're pretty far along in that process. And, uh, you know, I think Finland from a permitting perspective, um, you know, the Finnish government has gone out and promoted mining investment in the country. So, you know, as long as you're a responsible, solid miner, um, I think you'll be able to move forward with permitting pretty well. And, and Peru is the same. I mean it's changed a lot since the early early 90s um, but you know there's a good permitting framework in Peru uh, once you get to the stage of the development project and uh, so both jurisdictions are really solid.
0: And I think the relationships are just absolutely critical here in both jurisdictions Um, and you guys definitely have uh, your contacts in both of these jurisdictions as well and notably Peru. Uh, Scott, you guys have done a lot of work on the supply demand picture for vanadium. As we know, there are kind of two demand centers really that stick out in my mind, the growth potential in, in steel. Higher quality steel, I think, is is something that's that's coming more so. And then, of course, the growth in redox battery development. As you know, there have been a few sp- uh, price spikes in vanadium over the past few decades, quicks, you know, up and down. Are you concerned with more secondary supply coming into this market, Scott? And, and do you see really consistent higher prices in the near future?
3: Well, you know, if you look kind of at the historical charts over the last 20 years here, we really are at the bottom. And so Moustavar is gonna produce a a ferrovanadium, uh, FEV80, and you know, that's trading, it's traded up nicely. I mean, at the bottom of the pandemic, it was kinda $28 a kilogram. We're sitting at around 33, $34 a kilogram uh, today. It's a unique market because, you know, there's not a lot of primary production. So it's not, it's not like say the lithium market to use another energy metal you know it's the people can't just turn on supply um because there's not a lot of these primary deposits out there i mean most of it's made as a byproduct of steel production so um you know you will get these more volatile price moves in the market but i think if your listeners go and look at a historical chart um they'll see you know we're we're still just kind of ticking off the bottom here and um You know, we think there's a lot of potential for for upward moves and we're going to run this study um, in and around today's pricing levels and see how how we look. And, you know, we think we'll have an economic project at at today's pricing levels um, with a big option to uh, future price moves.
0: Yeah, Scott, that's good. And and that was one of my other questions here was just how comfortable you guys are with forthcoming PEA and comfortable at current prices, which I think I got your answer pretty well. So we'll see what happens when that comes out. Marshall, are you excited at all to work on project development for a metal that is not copper or gold?
2: Yeah, I've, I, through my career, I've been doing this for, I guess, 42 years now. I've worked on a lot of different things only worked on vanadium a little bit but i think one of the exciting things and ross kind of touched on it is this grid storage um you know if you look at like a cogen coal natural gas uh, unit you know a lot of these so you go into texas for instance there's sort of 550 megawatt sort of plants but if you look at grid storage from vanadium they're starting to get to that size and there's some projects that are over a thousand megawatts so I think it's pretty exciting where technology is going, and and like Ross said, it'll be interesting to see who the who the winner is um, in this grid storage uh, scenario. But yeah, it's it's been fun to work on vanadium. Uh, one of the things about vanadium versus a lot of the other metals is that it doesn't deteriorate with use, so it can be recycled, and um, so it's a pretty versatile metal. So yeah, it's been a good one to work on.
0: Leo, talk about the Peru exploration assets for a moment and why you guys selected the grounds in Peru. Well,
4: these are these are really early stage exploration assets. The thing about um, Peru is it, it hosts some extremely high grade vanadium occurrences. So that's what that's what um, caught our attention. So we we staked some uh, um, early stage areas that have the same characteristics as some of these. Um, Occurrences. So those are early stage grassroots projects, um, really built as, as as I said earlier, as analogs of of existing old vanading mines in Peru. Peru have one of the highest grade and and largest vanadium producers historically. So that's that's the kind of model that we, we stake these areas on. Um, you know, so we'll kind of keep plugging away at that that slowly. Um, and and you know, as we've alluded to, Peru is a place where we have a lot of history and a lot of context. So um you know when we saw that was a significant had a significant producer in the past and was a significant part of the vanadium story we uh we turned our attention there
0: yeah no that's a smart move and also just the fact that you guys are already you know pipeline building to some degree here with those those projects scott capital needs here uh do you need to raise capital soon what's your thoughts
3: yeah, well, we did our raise at the uh, towards the end of last year. That was really to get us out through the end of 2021. So, um, you know, we're we're running this company fairly lean. Uh, not a lot of uh, employees in in Finland, and or zero employees in Finland really, and zero in Peru. So, just using kind of consultants and people who've worked on these projects previously, and then you know partnering with some of the the people that we're earning in with on on actually executing at the projects. Um, so you know we think we'll get through the PEA and through the the drilling at CELA with the current treasury, and then um, you know look to look to raise maybe at the end of this year uh, once we see how all that shakes out.
0: Ross, what are your expectations for this company, and what do you think the exit will be?
1: It's hard to say, You know, as I said, I think the fortune of strategic is really going to be tied to the uh, the market for vanadium in flow batteries, or as you say, redox batteries, because if that market uh, really gets going, uh, the price of Vanadium is going to rise a lot and these, these assets that we have will become extremely valuable. There are very, very few companies in the Vanadium space on the resource side, on the mining side and if, uh, if the Vanadium market really picks up and, and so it's somewhat of a speculation on that front uh, but to the extent that they do and, and, and any investor in strategic is going to want to have a, an opinion on Vanadium because that's the fundamental, you know, metal of the, of the, the company's business. If they have a, a good view on Vanadium, this is one of those sort of go-to stocks that they should own. There's a couple in the space and this is one of them. Um, it's so cheap, it's got almost no downside and I think it's got, you know, fabulous upside to the extent that Vanadium is used more and more in, in, in flow batteries because the market for Vanadium and steel making is, you know, it's, you're right, it's going to it's going to increase and do better but it doesn't have that explosive potential that I think the battery market has. That's really the reason that an investor ought to own some strategic uh, to take advantage of that potential opportunity if, as and when it comes. It's not a risky investment right now. The company is doing good work, good exploration, good development. You know, worst case, I think we have an asset in Finland that could be economic at today's price, establishing a reasonable return. But the, the real blue sky upside is, uh, is with uh, a rise in Vanadium price with Vanadium being used more in flow batteries that's 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 why i like the company
0: thanks ross and looking definitely looking forward to this one and the progress that you guys are making here well for our audience on the screen is the contact information for each of the companies we've discussed here we encourage you to pick up the phone and call or email also for the social media users there are some options uh, shown here as well you know contact these guys and ask them questions Um, i think that's a good starting point and uh, we hope you do that. Now I want to come back for a moment to the group strategy we talked about earlier. Ross, cover the forward plan. Now I think all of us in this meeting or have at least seven to ten years of runway left in us. Is the Lumina group a generational continuing vehicle or do you see the group will be wrapped up at some point? What's the appetite and will this team stick together here?
1: Well, we haven't discussed that too much. Uh, I certainly am, am uh, slowing down. I've, I've announced retiring from Pan American Silver in May this year as, as chair. I've been chair for 27 years. I'm I'm going to be turning 70 this year, so I'm not uh, exactly a spring chicken. Uh, Marshall and I have worked together for a very long time, and I think I could almost say the same for Marshall. He's ready to smell the roses a bit more, and and so I don't see this being a, a, a next generation thing, particularly. Um, um, you know, maybe it will, maybe Scott will take up the the, the torch and uh, and carry the thing on for for another couple of decades. That'd be wonderful. And Leo, but um, from my standpoint, uh, I'm going to when we sell Lumina Gold, which I expect we will very shortly here, you know, this year certainly. Um, uh, that's going to be an exit from from that business. You know, leaving Luminex. I mean, Luminex, we've have we've, we've, we've gone through it pretty well today. I, I just think it's a fantastic speculation. On on uh, exploration success in Ecuador in in the copper game and the and the gold game it's just got it's loaded with asset it's cheap as borscht and it's just a great opportunity so that's just going to be fun watching how that plays out in the future maybe we'll be able to take that and, and spin out another company or two or three who knows and that's going to be something that really Scott's going to going to drive I think in the future and and as for strategic it it's going to. It's you know it's going to evolve and uh, and uh, who knows what's going to happen and and by the way there's there's other people in the company there's a, a fantastic lawyer Lyle Bratton, who's been a quarterback on, on an awful lot of this stuff in terms of the, the the backroom stuff getting all the detail management and we've got a big big team of people in South America they've all been part of the team and I think they're all going to want to continue this business whether I'm there or not they're all going to want to continue but quite frankly the assets we've got in Strategic and Luminex are for such good upside right now that you know, I think for the short term, it's, it's just gonna be fun to watch how they evolve.
0: Well, on a closing note uh, to our audience, thank you for taking the time to join Ross, Marshall, Leo, Scott, and myself uh, to talk about the Lumina Group and the work they're doing to really extract full value out of these companies. We appreciate the relevant questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Todd A, Linda S, Mike P, Brent, as Dave V, Cindy W, and Paul M. If we've missed anyone, our apologies. Unfortunately, we're not able to cover all the questions for the sake of time today. If you aren't a Smith Weekly member and have joined us for the first time on this event, please make sure you check us out on our website smithweekly.com and also via Twitter at smithweekly. We appreciate any questions and feedback that you might have, so please reach out using the contact information shown on the screen. Before we go. I'd like a comment from each one of you regarding one small piece of wisdom you can give our audience on life and family matters, patience, motivation to succeed, natural resource investing, honesty, managing emotion, and value creation. Just one tip from each of you on any of
1: these subjects. Ross, and I'd like you to start. (laughs) Well, I could talk for a long time on any of those subjects. I think I'm gonna stick to resource investing. I'm, I'm going to just encourage investors to You know, do their work and and listen to talks like this. You know, remember it's people as much as anything that define how well companies do. And take the long view and think for yourself, read a lot, travel a lot, be informed about what's going on to the extent you can. I know a lot of people just have day-to-day jobs and it's hard to find the time to do all this stuff, but really the better informed investor does better. Uh, And try to avoid the noise in the day-to-day you know, We get bombarded with so much information, it's very hard to look back and stand above everything and get into the clouds, look down in the forest, because you can get buried in the trees. But if you look at the forest, you look at these long-term trends. This business is cyclical. There are trends that go up and they go up for quite a while and then they turn and they go down. And it's understanding what causes those trends. And and I, I'm going to use gold as an example. Right now, gold is in a bear trend, but it's a short-term bear trend. I think it's a bear trend inside a long-term bull market. I just don't see the fundamentals for gold being that fundamentally different just because the U.S. bond market's gone up, you know, uh, you know, 50 basis points. So that would be the case of looking at the noise day to day, but not looking at the forest, which is the long-term outlook for for how much currency debasement's going on globally, you know, what the prospects for inflation are, and that kind of thing. So uh, that's that's my advice, and uh, you know I'm going to stop right there. Thank you very much uh, for your uh, for your show today, Andrew. Really appreciate Marshall. it.
2: Marshall. Yeah, I'm going to take a little bit different tack. I mean, I'm going to talk a little bit of, uh, on the context of social and and what it means and how it's such a key critical component to any success. I mean, we're all working in developing countries primarily, and even in more developed countries, it's still a key critical element and I think when you look at it, you've mentioned families. So, you know, I kind of look at my family and and I look at these communities in a similar way. I was fortunate enough as a sort of 12, 13 year old growing up in Brazil and and kind of seeing a a different culture and and living around favelas and that sort of stuff. And through all that, you get this deep appreciation that really um, people in the favelas are no different than us or people in in a, poverty area are no different than us and yet you have to treat them with respect and you have to have to respect them and until they give you a reason not to and and then you deal with the specific issues but it's such a cornerstone to success in in these companies and and ross likes to cite one example of something that we did in uh, peru at galeno up in the high altitudes around you know, sort of 14,000 feet in the Andes, where you have these really poor communities, we could have done a lot of the road construction with um, a bulldozer and done it in a day, you know, but we hired about 300 local people to do it manually, and and they were thrilled to have the jobs. And, you know, you build that kind of trust by doing those things. So in mining, resource exploration, mining, uh, and development work, you know, it's such a key component on how you treat your communities and and the transparency and respect that you give them.
0: Well said, Scott. What are your thoughts?
3: I'll be brief. I uh, you know I think the biggest thing I'd say to your listeners is with these resource stocks is is patience. I mean, you know, I there's a lot of things out there that are 50, 60 percent moves in a day that are very shiny and easy to grab attention, but um, you know, we encourage people to, you know, have a thesis, as Ross Ross says, do your work, um, and then be patient, because that's how long term value is generated. Leo, what are your thoughts?
4: Well, I think a lot of our success has, has been the the people we have behind us. You know, the teams we've we've built, and really, you know, we all enjoy working together. The whole the whole thing over the last uh, twenty years has been a lot of fun. You know, so so I think. You know, working with people you enjoy doing a, doing a good professional job um, really, really makes your working life very pleasurable. And, uh, and if you can be successful along the way, then that's, that's, uh, that's, that's really fantastic.
0: Thanks for that. Well, guys, it's been a great chat. I hope all of our audience has taken some notes. Thank you for taking the time to share your longstanding natural resource business experience with us here. Best wishes to all of you and the people behind the scenes at this group take it easy and keep driving forward the value.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew.